If you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to Genesis 38. I'm going to ask you a question as you're turning there. Have you ever thought that you were unsavable, unlovable, unredeemable? That's even a word, right? That you are so far gone that not even God can change your life. If you ever thought those thoughts, which even as Christians, sometimes we think those thoughts, but even if you're away from Christ or have never come to Christ, if you have thought that, what we're going to read today, I hope and pray, will change your opinion of that because we're going to read probably one of the most difficult chapters in the Scripture and probably one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible. We're our, we are in the story of Joseph. We just started in Genesis 37 to Genesis 50 is the story of Joseph. Half of Genesis is devoted to Jacob, and this is one of Jacob's sons, Joseph. Last week we saw that Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. His brothers hated him. They were jealous of him because he was dad's favorite. Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob. But not only did they hate him because he was dad's favorite, they hated him because he had dreams that seemed to foretell that one day they as brothers, they as a family, would bow down to him. And they couldn't take that. They said, forget this. Here comes that little dreamer. Let's kill him. Well, we can't kill him. He's our brother after all. Let's sell him to slavery. And Joseph is ending up in a, as a slave in Egypt. Now God, of course, who knows the full story of our lives, doesn't he? He knows the beginning from we're in the little we're in we're, we're in one of the frames. We live frame by frame, don't we, right? But God sees the beginning from the end. And if you're in Christ, he sees where we're at now and he sees what he's going to accomplish through your life, right? Joseph's not dead, but Jacob thinks he is. Jacob gets the news. Dad, we found this fancy colored tunic that you made. It's full of blood. Is it your son's? They know full well they've sold their, their, their brother. And for 20 some odd years, Jacob will be grieving every single day. He's a changed man already. He wrestled with the angel of God. He walks different because he had that limp. But now he's a broken man, grieved over his son. Joseph is in Egypt because God knows that there's going to come a famine. And God has to get his man in Egypt and be there and prepare him and work on him and get him to the right place so that when that famine comes, Joseph will be in charge and he'll be able to protect not only the Egyptians but his own family. See, God sees into the future and sometimes he works in your life now for preparation of years gone. Sometimes he allows you to go through pain and suffering and heartache and difficulties because he's preparing you for something that you're not aware of. And that one day, Joseph will see his brothers again. We'll see, you guys know the story. He'll see his brothers again, and he will be used by God to rescue. Why? 
because God made a promise to Abraham. I'm going to make your children, your seed, a blessing to the whole world. That promise to Abraham has to live on. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's children. Right? You read in, in the first gospel of Matthew, the first line, Matthew says, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. If Abraham's line is cut off, there is no gospel. So God sends Joseph ahead of time to make sure that happens, right? So Joseph's in, in Egypt. Go back to, go to Genesis 37, the previous verse before chapter 38, verse 1. Just the last verse. 37, 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him to Egypt, in Egypt, to Potiphar, Pharaoh's. In other words, while Jacob's weeping for Joseph, Joseph is alive and well in Egypt. Now we're expecting, as readers of the scripture, to go from dad grieving to Joseph being in Egypt to then Joseph living in Egypt. But there's a problem. Turn the page, or next verse, chapter 38. Chapter 38 is going to stick out, and it's going to be like, why is this chapter here? So I'm going to read the chapter, then I'll explain the chapter, okay? So stay with me. Now, it happened that at that time, at the time that Joseph's going down, Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name is Hira. And Judah saw there, saw there was a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he, went, and he took her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son. And he named him Ur. It's not on the top ten list of what to name your children, okay? <laughs> By the way, in Hebrew, the name Ur, if you spell it backwards, it, it means evil. We'll see about him. Ooh, watch what you name your kids, right? <laughs> Don't name your kid. Then she conceived again and bore a son, and she named him Onan. And she bore still another son, and she named him Shelah. That sounds like a girl name, Shelah, don't you think? Or Shelah, Shelah. It's Hebrew. And it was at Kezib that she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar, or Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up seed, or raise up a seed for your brother." And Onan knew that the seed would not be his. And it happened that when, or the Hebrew should be whenever, he went to his brother's wife, he wasted it on the ground in order not to give the seed to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord. So he put him to death also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I'm afraid lest he die also like his brothers. He's not really honest, right? Hey, go live with your dad. Then when he's grown up, I'll give Shelah, my youngest son, to you. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. And after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, 
died, his wife died. Then Judah was comforted, and he went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. Then it was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep. It's a big party atmosphere, what's going on here. I'll explain in a second. So she removed her widow's garments from herself and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself. And she sat at the entrance of Anim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Sheila had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. Then Judah saw her and he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come in to you. For he did not know that, it was, that she was his daughter-in-law. You know, reality TV has nothing on this chapter, okay? <laughs> and she said, will you, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, Well, I will send you a young goat from the flock. Moreover, she said, Will you give me a pledge until you send it? In other words, hey, you can, t- you can promise you all the goats in the robe. Okay, give me something right now. Well, what pledge shall I give you, he said. And she, he, she said, your signet ring, your signet rather, and your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. That's kind of like your ID and your credit card. So she gave them to, he gave them to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went, and she removed her veil from herself and put on her widow's garments. Then Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take the pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. So he asked the men of her place, hey, where's the cult prostitute who was by the road at Anim? But they said, there has been no cult prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there has been no cult, of pro- no cult prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep them lest we become a laughing stock. Behold, I, was, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. Now, it happened after three months later that it was told to Judah, saying, Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has played the harlot. And behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. It was while that she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please recognize and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. And Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I. Actually, Hebrew is she is righteous, comma, not I. I did the whole voice text thing. You ever do that? You ever find yourself saying comma and exclamation point because you've been voice texting? Okay. Right? She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Sheila, and he did not know her again. Now it happened at that time she was giving birth. Behold, there were twins in her womb. And it happened that while she was giving birth, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. And then it happened as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. So she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So, so he was named Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. Wow. 
Now, the first question is this. What is going on here? Why is this chapter here? We're talking about Joseph, right? We're talking about Joseph, who's, you know, he's a picture of Christ, and Joseph's going to save his family, and he's going to go through all this kind of stuff. And then right here, interruption. Wait a second. It's kind of like the commercial you want to fast forward through, you know? Like, can we just get through this? You know, why is this here? The scripture is very deliberate on things, right? Jacob has 12 sons. He's got the, tw- the 12 sons of Jacob, right? The firstborn, his name was Reuben. Now, the firstborn typically got the inheritance, right? But Reuben disqualified himself. Why? Because he slept with one of his dad's concubines. Oh, sorry, Reuben, you're out. You know, no matter how, how hard Reuben tried, he couldn't get back in, right? Simeon and Levi, the second and third sons, well, they were part of the massacre at Shechem. They said, hey, you, 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 you kind of raped our, our sister, so if you want to marry her, you're going to be circumcised. And that, after three days of the men recovering, they killed all the men in Shechem. So fourthborn is Judah. Judah is destined for greatness. Judah is destined for greatness. Right now, he's not very great, is he, right? Right now, he's kind of not living... He's living the life, but not the life he needs to live, right? What do we know about Judah? Judah's tribe is going to become the leading tribe in Israel. I want you to go to a couple of verses with me. Go to Genesis 49. Go to 40, Jordan. Genesis 49. <clears throat> and this is sort of the, you know, we're fast forwarding. I want to just give you a, a glimpse of what's to become of Judah. Jacob blesses his children, and in verse 8, go 8 through 11, Judah, Jacob is blessing his children later on. These are grown men he's blessing. And he's sort of pronouncing prophetic words over them. He said, Judah, as for you, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, and your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. That's a ruling staff. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. That's Messiah. That's Jesus eventually. And to him shall be the obedience of all, his, all the people's. Judah is destined for greatness because eventually the Messiah will come through Judah, right? Skip over to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Revelation 5. This is Revelation. So now we're fast-forwarding many, many, many years, right? We went from Genesis to Revelation, and guess who's still around? Judah. And verse 5 says, And one of the elders said to me, Stop crying. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. The lion of the tribe of Judah is Jesus. Right now, Judah, in chapter 38 of Genesis, is well, you know, he's not really, he's not where he should be, right? 
Now, if I'm Israel and I'm listening, the first listeners of, of, of the law and the book of Moses were the Israelites. And they're learning what uncle, grandfather, grandfather, great relative Judah was like back in the day. And we step back and we say, Judah started here, but he ended up there, right? That's why I asked you a question. You ever feel like you're in a place where you, you feel like you're, you're just kind of like too far from it all? And here we're going to see God's work in Judah's life. When the tribes would camp around the tabernacle, Judah's tribe was the main tribe. It was the biggest tribe. Judah led his other brothers into battle. And from Judah will come David. From Judah will come Solomon. From Judah will come the prophets Isaiah, Amos, Micah, Zechariah. From Judah will come Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, and of course, Jesus Christ. If you look at the genealogy, go to Matthew 1. Look at genealogy. We're, this is all introductory stuff, okay? Because we still have to get to the details of the text, don't we? But in, in Matthew 1, look at Matthew 1. I just love how the scripture all goes together, you know? It's one story. And by the way, Judah is in the line of Jesus, which means Judah, that turkey, he's in Jesus' genealogy which means that Jesus is not ashamed to have people like that in his line, which means that, oh, God knows what he's doing. But look at, gene- look at Matthew 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There are two highlights in the Old Testament. Verse 3, and Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Right? By the way, Jesus has four Canaanite or Gentile women non-Jewish, non-Hebrew, and a few of them, well, they had questionable backgrounds. Tamar plays the harlot, although she's technically his daughter-in-law. We'll get to that. Skip on down to verse 5. Solomon and the father of Boaz by Rahab. Who's Rahab? Book of Joshua. Rahab's the one who was, who was the prostitute who lived in the walls of Jericho, and she helped out the men go and spy in Jericho, and she becomes a relative of Boaz. Who's Boaz? He's in the book of Ruth. He marries Ruth. Ruth is a Moabitess. Her people were cursed because her people came from uh, incestual relationships. And, uh, you know, kind of... She's a Moabite woman. And, of course, we have David who has Solomon by... Notice it says the wife of Uriah. It doesn't even mention her name. Bathsheba is her name. She got all this stuff in genealogy of Jesus. So, the, so here's the thing. Judah is destined for great things. And Judah, go, go back to Genesis 38, Judah will be the main tribe of Israel, will be the lead tribe, will be the lead leaders of that, and the Messiah, David, Jesus, all that will come from Judah. But right now, Judah is a disaster, isn't he? But you can be a disaster, and God can still do something good in your life, amen? There is no one that's gone too far too far away, too messed up, too, whatever the scene is, Jesus Christ can change anyone's life. Judah is a disaster now. I'm going to give you, imagine now we're doing a film. I've got three scenes, okay? Scene one, verses one through 11, that is the descent of Judah. He's going down. That's scene one. Let's look at that. Scene one, 
Verse 1, Judah's descent. Now it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. This is more than just a physical descent. We're going to see that this is actually a moral and spiritual descent in Judah's life as well. Interesting, the same word is used in Genesis 39, verse 1. Joseph was brought down to Egypt. Now the difference is that, of course, Joseph didn't go there by his own choice. God sent him there. But the difference is what happens when Judah goes down to be live among the Canaanites, whereas Joseph lived among the Egyptians. The Egyptians, they didn't mix with the people. They kind of just kept all the peoples at bay. But the Canaanites, hey, let's, let's intermarry. Let's mix it together. And Judah now, his descent begins with his complete disregard for what Abraham said, Isaac said, and Jacob said. Here's what they said. Don't marry Canaanite women. They're bad news. They're bad news. Why? Because you think you're going to have an influence on them, but they're going to influence you more than anyone else. Uh, A couple examples. Look at Genesis 24. Genesis 24 and... Verse 3. Abraham sends his servant to go find a wife for his son Isaac. And verse 3 says, Swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, whom I will live. Go back to find a wife for my son back in my land. Go to uh, Genesis 28. That's Abraham finding a wife for Isaac. Here's Isaac. Look at Genesis 28. Verse 1. So Isaac called Jacob, blessed him, and commanded him, and said, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Um, um, And uh, verse 6. Esau saw that Isaac blessed Jacob and sent him away to take for himself a wife from Padamaram. And he blessed him, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Later on, the Israelites will be instructed in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 7, I'll just read it to you. When the Lord God, your God, brings you into the land, when you are entering it, and you'll possess it, and you'll drive out all these other nations, you'll, verse 2, you shall make, not make any covenant with them. Verse 3, you shall not intermarry with them, nor give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters to their sons. In chapter 38, Judah is aware of, let's see, Abraham is his great-grandfather. Great-grandfather's wishes, grandfather's wishes, and I'm sure Jacob told him the same thing. Judah's descent begins by him associating with the Canaanites, and that led to compromise. Look at what it says. He went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite. By the way, the cave of Adulah, uh, is uh, a place where David will later seek refuge from Saul. That's in 1 Samuel. And the name of this Canaanite, his, or this Sedulamite, his name is Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite. We don't even get her name, okay? Here's what we get. He sees her, he likes her, he takes her, right? Boom, 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 right? The language is just like Genesis 3. She saw the fruit, she took the fruit, she ate the fruit. You don't get her name. 
In fact, you get that she's the, she's the daughter of some guy named Shua. Okay, that tells you something, right? It's just a physical relationship. For him, it's just, hey, I'm just living, hey, I'm just, hey, you know, I got, uh, I got, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, it's all about me. That's what Judah's descent is all about. It's all about me. It's all about me. That's where, that's where some people are at, isn't it, right? It's all about me. Judah just marries her. He sees, he takes, he goes in. She conceives, she bears a son, and then the image goes. It was like, ba-ba-boom, ba-ba-boom, ba-ba-boom. There's no development over that. You get, you get the sense that this isn't really a deep relationship, is it, right? Those kind of relationships don't last very long anyway. I mean, Because after a while, it's like, come on, you need to have somebody to talk to, right? Quote little Billy Joel here, right? I just want somebody I can talk to, right? Friendship's important in relationships, isn't it, you know? I mean, you want to at least, you're going to be around the person. It's got to be more than just sex. And for Judah, it's all it is. So she conceived and bore a son. His name is Ur. She conceived again, Onan. She conceived again, Shelah. And we think, now the, the writer here is going through pretty fast. He's probably spending like 20 years you know, three kids, and eventually they get married. So it's not like it happens like tomorrow. Da-da-da. You know, there's time spent here, right? Meanwhile, while he's doing this, Joseph's in Egypt, and he's going through what he's going through. He's also, he get, he's given a wife, and he's going to have children as well. So the parallel thing is going on. The contrast is this. Oh, boy, what, what is going to, well, how is God going to do something with this? Well, we'll see. But he has complete disregard for the promise of God for Abraham. That is not in the forefront of his mind. It's not, what's on the forefront of his mind is what looks good, what feels good. I'm just going to do it because it's all about me, right? Verse 6, Then Judah took a wife for, uh, for Ur, his firstborn, and her name is Tamar. Her name means palm tree. Maybe she was tall and attractive, you know. Palm trees are kind of pretty, you know. Maybe We don't know if she's Canaanite. We don't know. We don't want any, we were thinking she was probably Canaanite, but we don't know much about her. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord put him to death. Now, this is, in fact, he's the first individual who God killed and judged like that. You see in Genesis 6 where God looked at the, on the face of the earth and saw the men uh, everywhere people were doing evil, right? So you think man is good. Man is inherently sinful. All of us are depraved. All of us. We think, oh, I, I'm more. And some of us have more, um, less crude ways of being depraved, but we're depraved. Apart from the grace of God, we're all in the same boat. Last week we look at the story and say, yeah, I, I used to be this way. I was Judah in my life one time. I've been there. Me personally, John Cor, I've been where Judah's at. I've lived this. I didn't get anyone pregnant. I'm just saying I, I lived that. Judah says to Onan, verse 8, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as her brother-in-law and raise up a seed for your, your brother. Now, a couple things. 
the law will later describe something called the Leverite marriage. The duty of the Levir, L-E-V-I-R, means husband's brother or brother-in-law. And the idea was, if one brother dies, the next brother is supposed to go and have a child with his sister-in-law so that the line of the brother who died will live on. And Jesus, of course, is approached with the story in, in the Gospels. Hey, there were seven brothers, and they all died. You know, and who's, you know, that, they did that story. But the idea is he's asking her, him, Onan, to do this, to let your brother's name live on. Right? After all, he is your brother. Right? Now, in the ancient Near East... Now, this is not in the law, but the ancient Near East, and this is written before the law was given. Deuteronomy talks about it, Leviticus talks about it. That if there were no brothers who could do this, the father-in-law could also perform this duty. In the law, if the brothers don't want to do it, then she would be free. So I'm just telling you context here, okay? Well, what does a good brother do? Verse 9, Onan knew that the seed would not be his. He knew that his son, oh, biologically my son, but in the inheritance he'll be my brother's, and he will get half the inheritance. The firstborn got more. It was a benefit to be the firstborn, right? And Onan is thinking, I lost my brother. I'm sad, but hey, I'm going to get the firstborn inheritance, so you want me to give that up for him and have some little kid and have him take the inheritance? I'm wait a second here. Come on now. Right? It's all about who? It's all about me. Ah, oh, Judah, he has passed on to his son, hasn't it? Judah, you haven't even taught your son about your heritage. Abraham, Isaac, you know, Jacob, the promises of God. Onan's like, forget this. And so, whenever he went into his brother's wife, and there was this a constant, repeated thing, he bailed. He pulled out. He spilled on the ground, and so as not to give his brother a chance to live on through a son. You see, Judah has no effect on his sons. His first son's evil. His second son's just as bad. And guess what's going to happen to son number two? What he did was displeasing, verse 10, in the sight of the Lord, so he put him to death. Two sons, gone. Now, what's missing in this chapter? Go back to chapter 37, verse 35. And I'm just going to say something. We're going to go a little long today, okay? And uh, my hope is that when we go ne move next door, that hopefully we can get cushion seats. Because I know, I mean, it's hard to sit on the thing. Oh, maybe I should just finish with one scene. Maybe I should. Uh, there's so much here. Let's keep going. No more. Look at verse 35. So his father wept for him 
That's Jacob weeping for his son that he thinks is dead, Joseph. Look at verse chapter 38. What's missing in this account? Judah has lost two sons. And what do you see him not doing? You don't see him shedding a tear. You don't see him grieving. You don't see him do anything like that. See, that's what happens when you, st- when you go down that descent and it becomes all about you. You don't care about other people's feelings. It's all about you. Ah, pff, your loss, right? It doesn't affect me. It affects them. There's no, no skin off my back. This is his children. And he has no idea why they died. You know why? Look, for the next, look at the next verse. And Judah said, verse 11, to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I'm afraid lest he also die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Here's, here's what's going on. It was his responsibility when she got married. So it used to be when she was single, the dad would take care of all the, all the girls, right? But she got married the husband and his family took over that responsibility. Judah's saying, I don't want to be responsible. It's all about me. I'll push you back to your dad. And then I'll tell you, hey, you know, to keep your hopes up, I'll give my youngest son, uh, Sheila, to you when he grows up. But in reality, he has no intention because he thinks she's the reason why my two sons died. I'm not going to risk giving you my third boy. He has no idea that it was the Lord that was involved in all this. Now, wait a second. So Judah, two of your boys are gone. You have only one son left. Now, you don't know that your destiny is for greatness, but you're living in this time right now where it's all about you, and you're like, I'm going to protect and keep my youngest from something happening to him, right? That's... That's where he's at. That's the descent of Judah. He lives a a selfish life. He lives for gratification now. He lives for what feels good. He's a little suspicious and he's a liar. He should have taken care of Tamar and he should have kept his word. But of course, if you're thinking about me, you'll do anything that will jeopardize that. And not only is this the descent of Judah, but it's also his diminishing line that's slowly disappearing. And there's only one hope left. And Judah thinks he can control the situation. Now, Tamar has to live single. Why? Because she's been promised to Sheila. So Tamar doesn't remarry doesn't move on. And years go by. She's waiting for the phone call. Hey, let's come on. Let's, let's do this marriage thing, right? Tamar will care more about her dead husband's line than Judah and his, and his young son. Second scene. First scene was the, de- the, 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 the decline or uh, diminishing. What was that? I can't speak English now. Help me out here. The descent of Judah. Are you guys with me? Is it hot in here? It is hot in here because it's Phoenix, right? Okay. So if the first scene is the de- 
the decline, the descent of Judah. Second scene is the desperate act of Tamar. This is crucial. Verses 12 through 23. Tamar is in a difficult situation. Let's look here at verse 12. After a considerable time, Shua's daughter, that's the wife of Judah, died. And Judah was comforted. Okay, doesn't say he grieved, but he was comforted. And then he, went, he goes up to the sheep shears at Timnah. He and his buddy, his old Canaanite pal that seems to be around, every time he's doing something bad, this guy is with him, right? So you've got to be careful who, you're, who you allow in your life, right, to influence you. It's one thing, you could be friends with non-Christians, but sometimes there's a part where they have more influence over you, and you start in your mind thinking, yeah, I'm, st- I'm still a child of God, but your life is so different. You've got to clear that away. Anyway, this guy is, he's, I don't think he's good news. Um, where was I at? He's going up to the sheep shears. What is that? That's a, it's a party festival. They gather, and there's all kinds of stuff going on, right? They're partying, they're celebrating, they're kind of doing stuff, right? So, verse 13, it was told Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep. So, she removed her widow's garments. How many years has she been wearing these garments? Years. She takes off the garments, covers herself with a veil, wraps herself, and she sits at the entrance of Enim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Sheila had grown up, and she had not been given to him as wife. She has been living in limbo, so to speak, for years, unable to move on, still waiting. She's dependent, of course, on her father now, where she's supposed to be dependent on her in-laws, and they haven't been entirely honest. She's promised to marriage to Judah's youngest, but of course, he was not given to her. So she takes matters in her own hands, and this is an act of desperation, and Tamar is going to be the hero of this story. Verse 14, she removed her widow's garments from herself, covered herself with a veil. I read that, Burton. Verse 15, then Judah saw her, and he thought she was a harlot, for she's covered her face. So, she, so he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. What will you give me that you may come into me? Think about the desperation Tamar has to be to actually put herself in that position. Who is she thinking about, though? Is she thinking about herself? I mean, is that something she, a woman wants to do? Who is she thinking about? She's thinking about her dead husband. I think she's also understanding the promise that was given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the significance of that promise. She says, I will put myself at risk because this is a big risk. The risk one is that Judah will just pass by and, and her plan will fail and she'll die. She'll die and her husband who had died, his line won't be carried on. She takes the risk for somehow she'll be fined out in the midst of it. And he'll, what are you doing? You know, that kind of thing. But love takes risk, doesn't it? Love isn't selfish, is it? Love isn't just about me, it's about others, isn't it? 
in one sense, she is going to be a picture of Jesus Christ who puts himself at risk for the benefit of somebody else. And her risk-taking will mean the life of her, her dead husband lives on, that the promise of Abraham lives on. You see that? See, when you live for yourself, it's short-lived and it's destructive, isn't it? But when you live for others, though it's risky to you, for others, it's a benefit and there's a blessing from God in that. Here she takes the risk. She's more concerned with her dead husband than even his own family. The future will hang on her choice. Now, I want you to see the significance of this. This act, this selfless act, will be the difference in the line of Judah. She doesn't know that, does she? It comes, this is the right thing to do. But her right thing to do will mean the difference between Judah's line being cut off, no Messiah, and a Messiah that will come because of what she does here. You see that? See, what you do affects other people, doesn't it? If Tamar doesn't take this risk, there's no birth of Perez. If Tamar doesn't put others ahead of herself, there's no continuation of the line of Judah. If she doesn't do the selfless act on behalf of others, the promise of the Messiah is cut off. So what will you give me, verse 16, that you may come into me? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to do this for free, and it's going to cost you. I'll send you a goat. How do, you know, how do I know you're going to send me a goat? Verse 18, what pledge will you give Give me your signet, which this, if, if there was a cord around your neck, there was a little cylindrical thing, or sometimes it's a ring, it would have a little emblem that was your, sort of like your signature. So you would sign things or you documents and show, hey, hey, the so-and-so actually signed this. So he did that. He gave her that. It was like his ID. And then his staff also had his family signature and name on it as well. And she's like, give me that so, every know, so I know that's you and you claim that because that's important to you, right? So they... She rose and they, she conceived, verse 18, she gave her, they, uh, went into her and she conceived, verse 19, she arose and, and went and she removed her veil from herself and put on her wills. She goes back to being a widow, right? She takes a chance. Then Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take the pledge to, from the woman's hand and he did not find her and he asked the women, men of the place, hey, where's the cult prostitute? Where is she at? There's no cult to prostitute here, verse 22 I didn't find her. There's no quote prostitute here. Verse 23. And Judah said, hey, I love to keep it. I don't want to become a laughingstock. It's kind of like you're a fine, distinguished gentleman who left your ID at, at the brothel and you don't, you're embarrassed. Okay, that's where he's at, right? I, I sent the goat, didn't find her. Scene three. So scene one, the descent of Judah. Scene two, her desperate act. And now scene three. And this is where this whole chapter is leading to the turning point or the defining moment in Judah's life. This is where it's at. Because if Judah is going to go from being this, this turkey, right? I'm going to call him a real turkey, right? To being someone destined for greatness, there has to be a change in Judah, doesn't it, right? Because later on in the story of Joseph, Judah will be the one that says, hey, take me. If, if, if Benjamin doesn't come back, I'll put myself at risk, right? Judah is going to be one that says, dad, hey, 
I'll take responsibility to make sure your son, Benjamin, will come back home. Whereas before, hey, think of uh, each, each his own to everyone look out for yourselves. That's how he is now. But something happened to Judah's life. See, something happens, right? And of course, what happens to Judah? What's the turning point? What is the turning point for anyone's life? How do you go from, it's all about me, to I'm willing to lay down out of love and sacrifice so that others can live on and benefit. As Christians, we're meant to walk in those steps of Jesus, aren't we? Who willingly took on the cross for others. Jesus didn't have to. Jesus didn't sin. Jesus did nothing wrong. Yet he takes our burden, our blame, our sin for us out of love. Here's the defining moment of Judah's life. Watch this. Now it happened after three months later that it was told Judah saying, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot and behold, she is with child by harlotry. Then Judah is so quick to judge, isn't he? Bring her out and burn her. Now the law even didn't, burning was very limited to certain things, but not this. At best stoning. But if you stoned her, you also stoned the guy who slept with her as well. But this is before the law was written. So he's like so vindic- I'm righteous. How dare she do like that? And he is blind to his own sin. Right? I love this. Look at verse 25. It was while she was being brought out, she waits until they're taking her, literally taking her, to be brought out. And she says, hold on. I am with child... Because you should know that it's not a one, it, this is not a miraculous conception here. There's somebody else involved. I am with child by the man to whom these belong. Please recognize, look at her language here in verse 25. Please recognize and this and see whose signet ring and cords and staff these are. When Joseph's brothers present Jacob with his bloody tunic. They say, Dad, please recognize this. Not, this is your son's tunic. And she doesn't say, these are yours, Judah. No. He has to come to the recognition on his own, doesn't he? He has to come to the awareness on his own. Look at verse 26. And Judah, what? Recognize them. Judah is faced and confronted with his own sin. And he owns it. There it is, right there. How many times when sin is pointed out in your life, you say, you know, but so-and-so did this to me. I'm not to blame. I have an excuse, right? How many times you say, well, it's somebody else's fault. This whole world is... We blame everyone else for our problems, right? By the way, you never see Joseph doing that at all. But here, he's confronted with something he's done. He says, well, you know, she tricked me. Well, you know, I, well, I, my dad didn't love me that much. None of that excuse, right? You cannot change until you are confronted with who you really are, your own sin, your own awareness of like, Oh, man. You have to reach the lowest point in your life. You realize, be merciful to me. I'm the sinner. Forget about what everyone else has done to me. I'm the sinner. 
Do you get that? He realized he is being confronted with who he really is. And if you own it and you say, that's the truth, I'm guilty as charged, that's the beginning of your change. Amen? Oh, that's hard. We don't like to hear that we are falling short because we're so prideful. I'm not as bad. But Judah's like, she, the text is here, she is more righteous than I. Literally, the Hebrew is, she's righteous, not me. It's David who sleeps with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, and has him killed. And the prophet tells a story that says, hey, David, this is a year later, David, there's a guy who had a lot of sheep and his neighbor has only one sheep that he loves. And this guy has family and friends over and instead of taking one of his own sheep and making a feast, he takes this guy's one only sheep, steals it, kills it, and has this party. And David said, that man ought to die. Judgment to that guy. And Nathan said, you are that man. David was confronted with himself, confronted with his sin. And if you read Psalm 51, God be gracious to me, the sinner, right? I'm paraphrasing the gist of it. He repents. How does anyone turn? You don't go from it's all about me to it's not about me to it's about others unless you're confronted with who you are unless you're confronted with your own guilt and sin, unless you say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, that's the beginning of change in Judah's life. And that's the beginning of change in all of us. If there's no repentance of sin, there's no change at all. I've been in Judah's shoes. My sister, my stepsister's here. She knows how I was back in the past, you know. But Jesus Christ is the difference maker, Nicole. You know, Jesus Christ, I had to come to a place where I sold my life so low that I realized, what? I'm guilty. And God, if you don't have to receive me. But if I'm, I give up. Some people say, well, I'll clean up before I come to God. And God says, you come as you are. I'll clean you up. I'll change you. But you have to come to a place where you said, no more excuse. I'm, I'm the man. I'm the man. Had Tamar not done this? One little act. One little decision of selfless risk-taking for somebody's benefit changed the course of history. And Jesus has Tamar in his lineage. This woman made a difference to bring me along, right? Right? But that change in Judah's life, and we'll see after this, Judah is a changed man because he finally said, you know, I'm the man. And you cannot change on your own. You cannot change yourself. And sometimes you try to run from that because you're embarrassed. But here's the thing. The point is we're all in the same boat. And God is saying, come to me in your filthiness. Admit it to me. Surrender that. And I will change your life. I will forgive you. I will wash you. I will cleanse it away. And I will work this in your life for some good reason and good effect in your life later on. 
None of us will be in heaven saying, hey, you know, I made it without sinning. We'll be like, I was in that pit. I was in that point of desperation. I was really bad. You didn't want to know me when I was there. I was Judah times 10, right? But Jesus Christ did something. When I came to him and said, Lord, forgive me, I'm the sinner. Take me, I am, I am at your mercy. There it is right there. I am your mercy, God. And God will show you grace to clean you up, to change you, to give you a new name, to erase all your sins, to give you a new future. I mean, I, you're talking about in, in heaven we'll have crowns. We're going to cast them at the feet of Jesus because he was the real difference maker. How does a person change? Confession and repentance. No more blaming the full God. I am that man. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are a God who is merciful and gracious. You see our sin, and many times we try to ignore that, but you see it. You see the mess. Maybe some of us are in the mess right now, and some of us remember when we were like Judah. No mess is too messy for you, Lord. New life is too out of reach for you. But you are waiting, Lord, to that point of repentance where where we say, I'm the man. And the person who presents him or herself to you, to your mercy, is showing just that, your mercy and your grace. God, I pray if there's anyone here today that is in anywhere in this story, maybe at the place of realizing their own sinfulness, that they would cast themselves at your mercy and receive your kindness and your forgiveness. And Lord, I pray that some of us are like Tamar. Uh, We're going through something difficult, maybe a loss or something where we have no control over. May it be, Lord, that you use, that you step into that person's life and encourage them. Lord, I pray that if anyone has not come to Christ, they would they would come to you in full conviction of sin and repentance and say, Lord, please be merciful to me, the sinner, and let it be, Lord, that you raise that person up, cleanse them, put on new, a new robe of righteousness, give him a new future to be with you in heaven. Lord, we praise you and thank you, Lord, that you are a God who changes lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Why don't we stand up? I know I went a little long, but hey, we finished the chapter, and that's all I care about, right? <laughs> it is a little warm. Oh, God is good, Amen. Amen, amen. Hey, so next next Saturday, men's and ladies group, men, we are inside. No more outside stuff. Yes, 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 we'll be inside. Um, and uh, yeah, bring, uh, bring your favorite breakfast um, item to share that rhymes with bacon. <laughs> we love bacon, so now bring what you want. Um, it's good to see everyone. Uh,
I just pray God's blessing on everyone and uh, just pray the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance, his favor, his smile upon you and grant you his peace. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen. Amen. Blessings to all. Have a good day.